there are the rich podcasts. There are the poor podcasts. And then there's 50 feet of baloney. And then there's a dog turd. And then there's film is lit. We're a scrappy bunch, but we're but we can win this best podcast. It only matters if you win the final game. The me- the metaphor has gone past the realm of I think there are podcast award shows. Aren't there aren't and they we're called like the Zanies it. or something like that? Yeah, you can be you can be nominated for Yeah, there are podcast awards. Robin, we haven't introduced you yet. Don't talk. <laughs> uh, Don't talk. Welcome to Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My name is Danny. I'm the self-appointed film expert. And I'm Laura, she, her, the self-appointed lit expert. And today on the pod, we are covering Moneyball, the 2003 nonfiction book written by Michael Lewis, yep. adapted into the 2011 film of the same name, produced by Brad Pitt, starring Brad Pitt, directed by Bennett Miller, the great director Bennett Miller. He's been nominated for a bunch of awards. He's only made three films, has never won an Oscar, but uh, he's three for three. Maybe this is the year. He wasn't nominated, but maybe this is the year. Yeah, didn't have a film that came out, but (laughs) maybe. (laughs) This director, Bennett Miller. (laughs) You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) And this is a special episode. All our guest episodes are. We have a returning guest. Our first guest. Finally, makes his second the comeback kid. Yeah, the comeback kid. <laughs> no one believed him. Everyone said he would fail, and <laughs> including me. <laughs> but uh, no, it's a pleasure to have him back on. He's also my brother-in-law. What? That's true. There have been a lot of things that have happened between uh, July 2020 and now. Yeah, he came to my bachelor party. <laughs> <laughs> Reluctantly. Yeah, that- <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. Uh, we we had to pay the security deposit because he did burn the house down, the Airbnb. <laughs> but uh, yeah, returning to the pod, Laura's brother, Robin. Robin, say hi. Hello to all the wonderful listeners. I am happy to be back. And that's all you're saying during the podcast. You can sign out now. That's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank it, you. We're and doing a mute. favor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, we knew we needed you to have you on for this episode. We wanted to have you back, of course, but this was kind of perfect uh, for you. Yeah. And you can get into your journey in a, in a minute here. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but Robin, for those listening who didn't listen to episode five of this podcast, uh, which you were on where we covered The Shining, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, the younger brother of Laura uh three years ish four in school years as i always put it um mm-hmm. no overlap there but uh yeah i figured this would be a great podcast to, or great episode to make my return for because baseball has been an integral part of my life for just about as long as i can remember between 12 years playing and you're in college and then kind of flipping the script and becoming more more interested in in pursuing something professionally in, in the sports field. Um, yeah, baseball has always been, been big for me. So, um, right now working on my master's degree in, I'm, I'm living in DC, going to Georgetown and 
Yeah, uh, I work for the Nationals, um, so the baseball team out here in D.C., working with their youth academy, foot in the door, beginning, you know, that Mm -hmm. side of the career, hoping to eventually potentially pursue something in the front office, similar to to, uh, Billy Bean, but just excited to excited to be here and share my wisdom. I like that you said flipping the script too because you went from player to and like enthusiast to back end of things like you were saying behind the curtain, which is exactly what this book tries to do and what I think the movie does really well, a lot better. I guess spoilers mm-hmm. for what I think. Mm-hmm. Um but I I don't know but you can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not a huge sports person that there are a lot of movies that cover behind the scenes in sports. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely, um, I think that's accurate. I think because it can get so esoteric as I've exactly. come to understand the book has, yes. um, it's, it's hard to get, you know, a lot out of that for, for an audience that isn't, you know, in tune with a sport at the level of, you know, that fandom that most, you know, diehard people are but exactly yeah and I guess maybe I'll stop us there our conversation there because I have so much more to say about that but yeah maybe we can go into our journeys before I add on to that thought because that's exactly I agree Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) definitely yeah so yeah the book came out in 2003 by Michael Lewis uh any background on on Michael Lewis not too much other than the fact that he this is kind of his where he wheels and deals I feel like he he's written a lot. He wrote the big short, which was also mm. adapted into a movie about the the economy. He has he's written a bunch of other books about well, it's hard to say that he dramatizes situations because unfortunately, I think that's where he missed with the book was actually dramatizing something that could have been very interesting. Mm. He writes a lot of books in a very similar way where he adds dialogue and sort of takes a little bit maybe of a leap with the characterization of real people. And mm-hmm. something that it kind of reminded me of was when we read Accidental Billionaires by Ben Mesrick. But the thing I liked better about that book, and going back to that episode, it also wasn't my favorite style of writing, was that at least Ben Mesrick up front was kind of like, hey, you know, this is all dramatized. I interviewed a bunch of people, but I made up most of the dialogue and he kind of had an introduction to help me ease into that style. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel like Michael Lewis's style is very much just like, he writes like it's nonfiction, like he was sitting in the room listening and watching the situations, but there's no upfront disclaimer that he wasn't there. So I, mm-hmm. I felt like his style is even more dramatized and removed, which also just like really made it hard for me to get into. I think mm-hmm. that's just his style, which, you know, sure. is fair. He's he's made a lot of money in movies and he's written a few books. And I even saw, I think he's either written or he's been writing a story about the Sam Bankman Freed situation mm. with cryptocurrency. Yeah. So he, he just, he has this niche and I think like he does it well and people are interested in it. It's just like not my style, but that's a little sure. bit of my journey sort of right. sneaking into his background. Well, the style doesn't invite anyone who's not interested in the subject. Yeah. Yeah, right. I say that's fair. Yeah, it's very analytical and precise, but it's not very inviting for the layman or I mean, speak like The Big Short, I think is a well-made movie, but if you don't have any prior knowledge to the 2008 economy crash, 
you'll be in the weeds. Sure. Even when you explain when it's explained to you. And I think that's partially true for Moneyball, although they have two expert screenwriters at the helm who are adapting this, yeah. who add stuff like emotion yeah. and uh, story and plot. <laughs> and I will get into this, but some of the beats feel very Hollywood and a little manufactured. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's also kind of the same thing of if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? You know, Billy's like daughter and and his ex wife, I think, adds yeah. some much need in his backstory. I mean, which mm -hmm. is very compelling. Yeah, adds some much needed conflict and pathos. Yeah, to the story. So yeah, yeah. um, all right. So yeah, let's get into our personal journeys with the material. So Robin, when did you first see or hear about Moneyball? Let's let's get into that. Ooh, that's an excellent question. Um, I couldn't give you uh, an exact timetable on that, uh, but it was not it was not one I I sought out in the um, in the theater. You know, like uh, something I, I was going to mention earlier is that I think my, in addition to, you know, when I was talking about flipping the script in terms of going from player to enthusiasm, I think my love and real passion for the game shifted significantly, like during high school, the high school years, but also like post playing career, because I think by the end of my playing time, I was just so burnt out. Um, I had played for so yeah. long, plagued, plagued by injuries, all that stuff. I kind of took a back seat and was able to take some time away from it and then learn to appreciate and love the game in a very, very completely different way. And so I think my passion for sports now is completely different from what it was when I was younger. And so I guess, you know, again, coming back to the movie, I think I probably saw it for the first time maybe five or six years ago. So yeah, it was it was more of a recent addition. But somebody I wish we could have had on the pod was is a close friend of mine, Kevin, who is a huge baseball fan too. But I, I remember, I think he was probably the first one to mention uh, the movie. And, and I, I know he talks about it being one of his favorite all times. And so I think that was probably the catalyst for me actually sitting down and, and watching it. And, you know, I've, I've seen it countless times now. And, and I love comparing the movie to kind of going back and going over the team's um, history and, and just looking at, and even in doing research for this pod, learning about the the differences between the story. Cause you know, obviously some things are altered a little bit, but for the most part, it, it plays pretty true to the, to the story. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I'm excited to hear like your real takes on baseball and Danny's real takes on the production of the movie. Cause real, I, this mm -hmm. book took me so long to get through. I haven't really actually done a lot of research outside of just yeah. trying to analyze sort of themes that are blown out in the movie a little bit better than the book. So I'm excited to hear both perspectives. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, baseball is, is probably one of, if not the sport that I think can be romanticized and told the best, you know, in, in terms of film and, and story. So mm -hmm. there's yeah. definitely some, some benefit there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Very dramatic. And the, the seasons are so long that it invites that rise and fall storyline. The comeback pretty kid. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's not dictated by a clock, which is what mm -hmm. I love about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah which also makes the game five hours long sometimes. Am I right? Fellas. <laughs> I'm here to, for it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you're talking to a baseball enthusiast, so I don't know if you're going to get a high five on that one. Yeah. Do you uh, you're, go you're a baseball enthusiast? No, Robin. I know, but I was also talking to you as well. I well, of, of all the sports, I did play softball and a little bit of soccer when I was growing up. 
but it's funny because I feel like I was a pretty good softball player. And I, I even made like the all-star team in California when I was in high school. But it shocks me how little I know. I think that the interesting thing was like, I was just one of those people who's just sort of like naturally athletic and could just like go out and, you know, hit and field a ball and I could throw really well. But in terms of like the mentality of either a good amateur player or a professional player, I think the mentality behind sports is lost on me. And obviously, especially like the management and the the strategy behind sports is lost on me. So it shocks me sometimes still how little I feel like I know about baseball, even though I actually played mm-hmm. the game. <laughs> sure. I, mean, I still feel like that. I mean, oh, you yeah. know, we don't have to, I, you know, I could talk for hours about all this, but I mean, even a game like basketball, like I still associate my earliest sports memories with the Lakers and sure. full disclosure, you talk about like positions even on the basketball mm-hmm. court. To me, there's still five players. Like, you know, I know there's, you know, a point guard and a fort, like, but those don't really mean anything to me, you know, right past a certain point. So that's even on a, a, a sports nerd like me, I, it takes a long time to, to get to that point. And the only reason I feel that way about baseball is because I played for as long as I did. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll just, wrap up my journey I base that's basically it I don't have a long journey with sports I feel like if you want to know my the depth of my sports knowledge everybody can go look up the sketch by Kyle Mooney on YouTube called sports because (laughs) I just usually my one line in football is they're gonna kick a field goal and (laughs) and they usually do they usually do exactly that's that's why i think it's a pretty applicable line and then for baseball i i can get into a baseball game i do really like going to baseball games i i do enjoy cheering for the dodgers if i go to a game but yeah i'm just i'm not interested too much but unfortunately i think what i was looking for out of this book which i think the introduction kind of teased was that I thought it was going to be a book that was going to be more universal about things in baseball, but also outside of baseball that should be grounded by reason and data. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so much in the functioning world, as much as we like to think about how data driven we are, a lot of stuff works very much like baseball where it's kind of like, you know, this is an old guy's, you know, exclusive club and we do things based on instinct And so I kind of thought that the book would be saying like, you know, this is how it works in baseball and also in a lot of other things. Like, you know, we could be extrapolating data, but we just don't. And I don't think that the book ever made that leap for me. It's just, it's so insider baseball to use that sort of appropriate Mm -hmm. phrase. Um, Well, like that's like where it comes from, ostensibly. Exactly, yeah. The the phrase insider baseball is like, this is what we're talking about. Which is interesting (laughs) because it also, that phrase kind of speaks to how opaque decisions are in baseball and I think how much the paradigm shifted after Billy Bean and Paul D. Podesta stepped into the game Mm -hmm. but again unfortunately I think the book just really lost me for a couple reasons it felt like dramatized nonfiction, which I don't like it's about a topic that I'm not a thousand percent invested in if, if I have a passing interest, it would have been how he would tie that into other things that could be data-driven that just aren't. And that didn't yeah. happen for me. The movie, I had never seen it. 
And so Danny and I watched it last night and I really enjoyed it. Although I think the one thing that stuck out to me was it actually surprised me that it was written by Aaron Sorkin because it seemed like a very slow, like almost like a slower script because Mm -hmm. usually Aaron Sorkin is like constant, like banter, banter back and forth. And I think smartly his co-writer maybe pulled him back a little bit. Yes. Because if it had been as tight of a script as Aaron Sorkin's usually are, I think that it, it also would have lost me a lot quicker, but by sort of, forcing in a few more of those like dramatic beats it helped me stay interested um Mm -hmm. but again as as sort of a passing sports fan i'm not sure that it's like my favorite movie in the world but i did i did enjoy it i thought it was really fun and i'm glad we're covering it because i still think a lot of themes that come out in sports are really interesting to look at i'm maybe i'm more like interested in the theatrics of sports like you know talking about like the book even talk goes into like having psychologists work with team members which actually is talked about on ted lasso a little bit too yeah robin just watched ted lasso for the first time and so like those things really interest me too i think that's kind of where i get the dramatics a little more is like the themes behind like winning and losing and anger and masculinity and balance and burnout like all of those things are very interesting to me whether or not that's in the context of sports or i don't know economics something like that i'll interject there is our my professors always love to remind us that the first letter in espn stands for entertainment so yeah there you go. keep in mind it's a business it's all a money game it's business. yeah it's money mo- ball <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly. whoa yeah so anyway i've <laughs> talked for a while so your your turn yeah you kidding me like TikTok down there. No, I'm kidding. I can listen to you talk for minutes. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, just to comment on what you're saying about the writers, this is definitely Aaron Sorkin at his most restrained. Right. I think this is either the third or fourth Aaron Sorkin script that we're covering on this pod. Safe to say that we like the man a oh, lot. Yeah. But this is the only case I can think of uh, in Aaron Sorkin's films where he has a co-writer. Of course, he had co-writers on the West Wing like on TV because on TV, there's a writer's room. But movies, for the most part, are only a few writers. And Aaron Sorkin usually works alone. All his Oscar nominations, save for this one, are for scripts he completely adapted from start to finish. So the co-writer on this is Steve Zalian, who did Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, the good. David Fincher movie, which we covered. We really enjoyed that. Of course, Steve Zalian is famous for his Oscar-winning script for Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's where he first worked with Spielberg. And so my theory, and there's nothing online that can prove this, but I think Steve Zalian, who's more like a reporter-type screenwriter, I think he wrote the first draft and Aaron Sorkin was hired to punch up the dialogue. There are many <laughs> moments in this film where there are just like really biting, funny lines. You know, yeah. like the there's rich teens, poor teens, 50 feet of crap. Like yeah. that type of stuff, which is very Aaron Sorkin-esque. Hmm. So my theory is that Sorkin was, was a punch-up guy for the script. And yeah. he he's not the original author, although he contributed enough to gain the co-writing yeah screenplay is that that's my theory that's smart yeah yeah my journey so i grew up as a lacrosse player now 
on the East Coast, lacrosse players and baseball players are like the Sharks and the Jets. Mm. They hate each other. One sport (laughs) hates the other. And my older brothers grew up playing lacrosse as well. So I grew up detesting the sport of baseball. I always said it's so boring, so slow. I didn't really start appreciating baseball until I lived in Boston during college. I lived 50 feet from Fenway Park for two years. Went to a bunch of, yeah, Fenway Park and went to a bunch of games. Now, I'd be lying if I say that I still think sometimes games can be a little long. And I have trouble with just long events too. Like three-hour movies I struggle with um, Mm. to reference the the latest avatar that came out it's it's one of the most visually yeah one of the most visually stunning movies i've ever seen in my life but for the life of me i couldn't pay attention because it's just so long and i feel the same way about baseball i think football is kind of or lacrosse is perfect length anyways (laughs) i didn't see this when it came out but my freshman year i lived in a dorm with the seven-year accelerated med school students And my friends on that floor, Wasif, he was big into stats, and he actually introduced this movie to me, and I watched it for the first time. Really, really liked it a lot and gained an appreciation for the sport that I didn't have before. And living in L.A. for six years, I've had the opportunity to go to Dodger Stadium, you know, about four times, I believe, mostly with your family. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And it's it's a really fun time. Like, I I think, like, Dodger Stadium and especially Fenway Park. Those are two parks that specialize in kind of the audience spectator. Yeah, the show of it it all, which is Mm -hmm. fun. So I've gained an appreciation for the sport over the years. I don't hate it anymore. (laughs) And yeah, watching this movie, I hadn't seen it since 2012. It still holds up. I think it's really, really understated, really well-directed. Bennett Miller, the director, he's so interesting because... He's directed three films. He directed Capote in 2005. He directed this in 2011. And then Foxcatcher in 2014. Mm. That's it. There's no reason for why he's directed so few films. All three films have been nominated for Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Actor. Mm. Um, All of them. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's in this in Moneyball mm-hmm. one for Capote. So he's the celebrated director, but for whatever reason, doesn't make a lot of stuff. Uh, hmm. I don't know the reason why, but I, I, I think that adds to kind of the allure of, yeah. of Bennett Miller yeah. that mm-hmm. he's, he's directed so few and his films are just so, like I said, understated, mm-hmm. you know, Capote is a very quiet film about a very serious crime. And, um, yeah, I'm I'm just this this film is really it's the type of film that rarely gets made, which is a, a two hour, 20 minute movie about statistics. Like, mm-hmm. I would say this is more a movie about the process than about sports. Yeah, but it's done. It's done really well. Bennett Miller really specializes in character work and mm-hmm. you really get to know Billy Bean as he was. That's also a testament to the writing. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, I. Something that I think the the book just simply could not do is capture the excitement and tension of the actual games mm-hmm. because it doesn't matter what you do in writing. I mean, some sports writers can do this and that's why they win like 
Pulitzers, but to open the movie with real footage of the Oakland A's playing and winning or losing and recapturing that magic, I think was the perfect way of speaking to someone who read the book and was really left cold <laughs> with like the the descriptions of someone like fielding a ball or even hitting a home run. There was just no drama in the book. So to open the movie with those real clips immediately sort of puts it in your heart that it's like, oh, that's right. Baseball can be romantic, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that Absolutely. was a great way of, that was a really smart decision by the director to be like, hey, I know if you read the book, you might not have been blown away, but remember this is a romantic game that can capture anybody even at its low points people are emotional about it yeah i i think that i i made a note of that opening scene and it showcases fandom in in every way because it shows mm. the games that they were showing were um in new york mm. uh and so you have the yankees fans you know loud and boisterous and then it juxtaposes that with billy sitting in the Oakland Coliseum by himself in the stands, lights are off, listening on the radio, not even watching the game. Right. You know, he goes downstairs and the one security guard has it on his on his TV. And and it just, you know, the the emotions, uh, that range of emotions perfectly captures what we go through. And, you know, it's extremely effective as an opening scene. Yeah. To your point. America's game. <laughs> well, yeah, something that I wrote down just to not to beat a dead horse, really, but something I wrote down was Robin can relate regarding not watching games too invested. And that definitely speaks to not only how you and our dad watches fo uh, baseball for the most part, I think over football. I think our dad yeah. is definitely more invested in baseball, but of just like straight up, just like turning the television off and and then also sometimes like looping back, turning <laughs> it on you know, checking the score, watching one bat uh, or one um, batter and then mm -hmm. turning it off again, just, you know, walking away or like, I love when Billy throws the radio and then goes out and picks it back up. Yeah. I love when he's working out during the games because mm -hmm. he's, he's working so hard to not pay attention. He, like, he just, he wants to so bad, but he just, he can't keep his mind off it. I love when he's, He's uh, doing the the pull down bar. He's not facing the television. He has the remote. He like turns it on, listens to, for like three seconds, and then turns it back off again over his shoulder. I love those moments because I yeah. feel like that's that's the next level of fandom is you love it so much that you can't stay away, but you also literally can't you can't watch it. Yeah, I mean, I did that last night, literally with mm -hmm. Lakers and. Celtics game I, I turned it off and then I was texting a buddy and then turned it back on but I mean does the is that all just in the film or does the book you know talk about moments about him you know not being able to watch I yeah that's right. a good question yeah that that is more or less exactly how Billy Bean was mm -hmm. and is yeah um, he would leave the stadium and drive around or work out um I think something that the book actually focuses on a lot is Billy Bean's anger that's mm -hmm. based in his failed baseball career as a player. And I think that that was maybe keyed back a little bit for the movie. I feel like there were a few moments, like when he throws a chair, he, he yeah. brings a bat into the locker room and, and, you know, like tosses the, the Gatorade 
cooler. And mm-hmm. yeah, and says like, that's the sound of losing, which is straight up what both my football and lacrosse coaches have. Mm. They, they've given that same speech like before oh, yeah. this movie came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is losing fun? Yeah. Is losing fun for you? Right. I hate losing so, more than I like winning. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that line too. So there were flashes of that. I think if this had been like a more adult drama, it probably would have been keyed up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And even by the end, I think they leave that a little bit unresolved because something the book actually does dive into a little deeper is the psychology of people who have quote unquote, what it takes to be a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. And One of the things that I really, I liked learning more about Billy Bean's past in real life because what Michael Lewis talks about is one of the reasons he didn't do well was because he just psyched himself out. And not only that, he was such an angry person that other players just didn't want to be around him. He wasn't a fun Hmm. teammate. And that's something that none of the scouts, you know, sort of proving the statistical points is that none of the scouts had a flavor for who he was as a person. Mm -hmm. And as soon as he psyched himself out, he was a terrible baseball player. And again, we don't get too much of that in Brad Pitt's performance. I feel like it would have taken the movie in a different direction. And I think they just kind of wanted to keep it like a by the numbers sports drama. But I almost feel like I would have, I would have made this movie a little differently and, and focused more on, the psychology of sports and what it does to people who are, who play professionally mm-hmm. um, rather than like his family drama. That's where I would have yeah. taken the movie. Well, I love how it gets into the psychology of trading players mm-hmm. or more seriously, letting players go. Mm-hmm. I really wasn't expecting that element to come into play and it's re- really pushed in the movie and your dad, speaking of your dad, I think the funniest memory i have is the dodgers you guys won in 2020 right yeah yeah so it was the final game of the series and your dad was nowhere to be found (laughs) and i remember you you called him and he's just like oh yeah i'm just driving i'm just like i'm like pete they're like they're about to win like he's just like god just don't don't tell me i'm just going for a drive that so that's one part of the psychology of it but more so of trading players letting players go your dad made the comment that a great companion piece to this movie would be Up in the Air, mm-hmm. uh, the George Clooney movie about uh, he's hired by other businesses to fire employees, to, mm-hmm. to lay oh, employees off. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to cover that in the future. Mm-hmm. But since sports are such a sensational thing, it's easy to forget that the people playing are, are people. And these are their lives you have to you have to consider but when it comes to trading players and moving players to different teams considering players age firing players if you bring emotion into it then your team will fail plain and simple like if a player's a a player could move across the country with his family put 100k down on a house and then immediately be out of a job and like have to set that's just part of of the process and players can completely reinvent their life in a new city and a week later have to do it again in another city and that's something that i really think the book but especially the movie it bring it's an interesting thought experiment to remind you that like hey players 
are not just stats. Even though the movie is about baseball stats and using that to team's advantage, the actual people that you're dealing with have lives. And I think Absolutely. that's a good a good reminder of that. Yeah. So Robin, if you just want to set up the context of the Oakland A's in the late 90s and early 2000s, all the way up to 2002 to where this movie starts. Yeah, absolutely. So Oakland A's, um, in spite of how they're kind of, I suppose, portrayed, um, at least through the first, you know, half or so of the movie, are actually very successful and storied franchise but but there are definitely some gaps in in their success and one of the original cities they were in was philadelphia um and uh, out of the 11 world championships they've won or nine excuse me i was thinking about the red Sox. um let's see sorry just so yeah nine world series championships and four of those were in oakland um and so their last one leading into that 2002 season was um the last one they won was in 1999 against the uh Giants, which was famous because uh, that was during the, the they were literally playing each other uh, during that earthquake uh, oh, when the bridge right. collapsed and everything. Um, yeah. And the year before that, uh, is worth mentioning that the Dodgers um, beat them. Uh, but anyways, uh, so <laughs> since that world, mentioning. yeah, since that World Series in 1989, they haven't won any series um, since then, but have had multiple trips to the uh, to the postseason and some of the context to that, I guess this idea of, you know, in spite of a sustained success in the regular season, you know, and they talk about this in the movie, it's kind of like, you know, once they get to the playoffs, this roster that's been built over 162 game um, sample size doesn't really mean anything in these short series mm-hmm. um, where any given Saturday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A team's <laughs> success over a long period of time isn't going to be sampled proportionally the same way in a short series and where, and where you know, that overall talent is going to prove to be successful. And so mm-hmm. that's the whole thing about the Billy Bean era. And they've had eight playoff appearances since then, mm-hmm. since when they uh, were in the World Series. And so that's fourth most in the entire major leagues so that's impressive um they let's see so they have the fourth best winning percentage so that means out of you know the 162 games the fourth best in the american league and then six overall in the entire league since that time Mm -hmm. too um and all of this again the important thing to remember has been done with the lowest or close to lowest uh payroll so the amount that the players are getting paid and that's there's a separate conversation to be had about what the owners can spend but um right yeah that's that kind of sets up a little bit more to the Oakland A's. This is good too because it makes me it reminds me of something that I was gonna say about budgets because I, I remember something early when Danny and I were dating that I asked him was like, why are movies made? Why are bad movies made? Like why do bad movies come out? What causes that? And I sort of had the curtain pulled away from me when Danny said, well, a lot of times, production is the cause because they think that it's not going to test well or they run out of money or you know another project becomes priority over another a lot of it is production so it's not always like the director who maybe had a great ending or an adaptation of a book has a great ending and then the movie Mm -hmm. changes the ending and the movie sucks Mm -hmm. so like something that I remember asking you a long time ago because I think you and dad were having a conversation about sports budgets or team budgets was like well you know what 
what makes you like or dislike a team and what what makes a team like good or bad sort of nuts and bolts right and i remember you talking about budgets being really important because you can't just go out and i think i remember you talking too about teams like the yankees who just like have an insane spending budget Mm. and so like that's one of the reasons they're good because they can like they can go out and spend money on the top players yeah and i love that whole idea of the fact that like billy bean started to actually make money for his team by trading people that other people wanted off their roster they're like we'll pay you to take this guy off our team yeah or to even play against this player because we think they suck so i just i love that idea that he kind of hacked the game in a lot of ways but in a way that is like it's it's not cheating obviously he literally was looking at what the other teams had it's card counting as exactly as aaron sorkin yeah i actually wrote that line down i wrote that line down because it's a really it's a great way of showing of showcasing like exactly how he used the game as it's played against other teams <laughs> so anyway yeah. sorry, that's like a long well thing. no i mean and and again i i could go on for days about this but that's that's why this is such a compelling story because it directly affects how baseball not only baseball but every sport has kind of shifted since right. um since the, the oakland days like adapted this style so two quotes i wrote down you know from jonah hill's character peter brand is you know the goal shouldn't be to buy players it should be to buy wins and then he like kind of breaks that down. And then it's also, you know, it's about finding value in players that nobody else wants. Um, mm-hmm. Like you were saying, you know, like it's, it's very common now. I mean, even one of the trades between Boston and, L- and LA that happened uh, during uh, 2020 before the pandemic was um, they acquired a couple of players, but uh, one being David Price, who has got a huge contract with the Red Sox, but you know, he was older. And so, one of the reasons they were able to um, that the Dodgers got him was because they, the Red Sox agreed to pay for, I, I couldn't tell you how much of his contract it was, but pretty much the majority of his contract that was left on it, you know, and mm-hmm. although they were they're in different leagues and, you know, they, they wouldn't be playing each other much the case, like um, David justice. Sorry. So again, the, the point of, of, you know, having players finding value in those players that, that other teams, um, don't anymore is huge and going back to the idea of you know how this model changed how sports or or teams are run and built is is big because the a's showed how it could be done on a smaller budget but then you have the juxtaposition of of teams with all the money and the yankees haven't done this as much but teams like um the red sox and the dodgers have really adopted this idea of using data but then the benefit, like they're the the difference is they actually have the spending budget to sign the mm-hmm. big names and supplement that with other players that are more valuable that fit their system as opposed to someone else's. And it's funny because the team that I know most about, you know, the Dodgers, like they still trade a lot with the A's and the Rays, who are the two most data driven teams, but have the lowest mm. budgets and payrolls consistently. So there's just there's there's so much implication as to how this system that you know Billy Bean and his his squad we'll call them um, mm. how they changed it and how every sport now is is adapting to this. Mm-hmm. The Bean Boys. The Bean Boys, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Robin, you're setting me up perfectly. 
great guest. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Great guest. <laughs> Two things. One, it's inherently compelling because they're talking about rich teams versus the poor teams. Everyone loves an underdog story, right? That's inherently compelling. And that's what it, the sport of baseball, especially, was like four years. I mean, the Oakland A's in 2002, they had a budget of around $40 million, And the Yankees was about three times that. They have three times the amount of uh, specialty players or these mm. kind of celebrity players on their team. But what changed it all and what the movie and book are about the statistics are are known as uh, sabermetrics coined and created more or less by Bill James, this mm-hmm. statistician who wrote about uh, this method for decades before mm-hmm. he was actually hired onto the Red Sox in 2002. And two years later, the Red Sox won their first World Series since 1908? Uh, 18. Thank you. Yeah, I think. And the Red Sox. It was against the Dodgers. Yeah, that's the only reason I remember. <laughs> right, and the Red God Sox won. Two thousand four was the first year they they broke the curse. Yeah, yeah. right. The and historic 2004- comeback against the Yankees in the championship series. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was just two years later. It, yeah, yeah. So the, Bill James broke the curse, and there's even a line in the movie where the Red Sox owner he's like, "Why it took so long for someone to hire this guy." basically the father of this type of statistical thinking in sports why it took so long for anyone to hire him is a mystery but i think it's proof that as soon as he was hired the red sox broke this 100 year curse well i i love that too i feel like i've also been canning a couple things that i want to bring up and what i love about that is that it really cuts to the person who was responsible for that type of win mm-hmm. whereas it's like you know, sort of the the theatrics and the narrative of sports is very much like, oh, there is a curse on the Red Sox and, you know, it couldn't be broken until this one team, this perfect team came in and smashed it. And it's just so interesting that, like, you can look at that and say demonstrably the reason they weren't winning was because of, you know, the fact that they weren't playing the right game almost. Right. Yeah. Um, but the narrative is the fact that they broke the curse with this team. It's just so interesting. Right. And the other thing that the movie is not able to get into is they touch on Bill James a little bit in mostly a negative way where, where most people yeah. are like, you know, you just can't change the game if you've never played yeah. it, you know, with statistics and paperwork and math. Not a game played and- on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and even the scouts are like, you're going to discount 20. I've been working in for 20 I, years. So I love, I also love that. And I think we, Danny and I were talking about this a little bit in terms of this new movie that just came out called Infinity Pool. But where I find really compelling narratives come from is when there is a paradigm shift, something has to sort of catalyze the action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. that... I think that's really the reason why things like rom-coms and stuff aren't usually very compelling because mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, nothing's happening. And then the catalyst is like someone meets someone that's not super interesting to me. This point in time is interesting specifically because players started being able to be paid with the free agency decision in 1980. Mm-hmm. And I think that's 
also another reason, something that the movie doesn't go into, but it's another reason why there was a huge paradigm shift during this time, during like, and this is sort of like pre nineties Oakland days, Mm -hmm. but this is where I feel like the rules were starting to be questioned about like, okay, you know, when, when we started playing baseball as a nation, as a country, what were we not able to do that we can do now that can make the game better? It's mm-hmm. like, I, I think that that sort of paradigm shift is exactly where interesting stories start to happen. And that's true, I feel like, of, of any book or movie. It's just really interesting because I think like that's when changes start to happen in real life. And so I just like, I think that's like a very natural way of taking what Bill James had been doing for decades and people were just they were more open I I love that conversation about you know how people who I think I think it's when Billy Bean is talking with the manager of the Red Sox when he's like if people don't start doing what you're doing you know they're going to be talking a big game because their livelihoods are at stake but they're also going to be sitting on the sofa watching their team lose to the Red Sox yeah like I I think that there are people who start to see these changes and say, okay, if we don't adapt, we're going to be left behind. Yeah. And sometimes that happens at a flashpoint, a watershed moment, if you will, 112263, anybody. <laughs> um, but then unfortunately I think a lot of other things are very slow. And I, I think another point of really smart drama, which we talked about a little bit earlier was the fact of how hard they leaned into the visualization of just like 12 old guys especially in particular 12 old white guys sitting around a table discussing the the physicality or the attitude of a player that they don't know they've yeah they've seen and met a player once yeah he's got an ugly girlfriend (laughs) no confidence yeah no confidence exactly (laughs) and like i i just really love that they've juxtaposed the old way of doing things very visually because you otherwise like you don't you don't see that we don't see that happening if you're not someone like robin who's sitting behind the scenes and then causing that drama that they really are threatened Mm -hmm. like what what are they going to do if if they're not going and watching kids play baseball um i just i love that shift of people who are really on the cutting edge of things and people who are just fighting it because of selfish reasons well, I think that's why baseball is like the perfect sport for storytelling because it's one of the oldest and mm-hmm. it's always, I think, you know, it's funny, pe- you know, people talk about the, the popularity of the sport and how boring it is, but at the same, and how stuck in its ways it is. But at the same time, in so many ways, baseball is like super progressive in terms of how things are introduced and it always reflects mm. the times, mm. you know. There's like baseball was the first sport to break the color barrier. Like those are, you know, that's like a big example of it, but you're talking about like analytics, like all of that, like in data, like that's, that's all stuff in real life that, you know, outside of sports that's now taking over in the same way, yeah. you know, and, and there were earlier adapters, you know, um, more so than others. But um, yeah, I just, that's one of the reasons I love baseball is because it always gives context to what's going on in, you know, our country, especially, but in the world overall and, and, it's a perfect storyteller. Yeah. Well, just one quick tag to that too. That's why I enjoy watching baseball with people like you and dad, because when I ask what just happened, 
usually there's more of a context than like, oh, that was a bun. Usually mm-hmm. it's like, oh, well, you know, uh, five years ago, this wasn't legal um, by the playbook, but they've changed it because either statistics showed that it was really helpful to a player or a team or a win, or, you know, there was an, there were injuries that started popping up that proved that, you know, you couldn't slide this way or you couldn't hit this way or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like there's more context to that type of change in baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, even though the movie is more commercial and digestible than mm-hmm. the book, what Michael Lewis specializes is finding the stories within statistics. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what sabermetrics is. It's following the story of it. It makes perfect sense how Michael Lewis covered the 2008, the housing crisis and the stock market crash is because mm-hmm. there were people who are saying the stats They are telling a story that's leading to a path, right? And old men, old white Italian men were like, no, we're set in our ways and we're going to stay doing what we've always done. And that's precisely what Billy Bean leveraged to get his team to have that 20 winning streak in 2002. And that stubbornness also, you know, switching gears to a completely different industry. That's what led to the the housing bubble popping. Mm Is because everyone, you know, kept with these big loans, yeah. And then it, it all, and they're Backed like, "No, we're not going." Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's very similar. I, I did. I'm not really making the connection until right now, like how similar the two Michael Lewis's writing is. Yeah. Even though we're not covering the Big Short, I think something that Moneyball, the movie, accomplishes over the Big Short is really uh, making something that's incredibly complex insider baseball making that palatable Mm -hmm. for mainstream audiences and i think that was reflected in its uh, box office success so to do a little money ball on the movie money ball the budget was 50 million which is actually high seems like incredibly high for a movie like this i know brad pitt's salary was probably uh, half of that half of that uh even though he was a producer i'm sure he paid himself well like he he knows his value so his salary was high. The production budget. I mean, the movie looks great. It was shot by Wally Fisser, Oscar nominated director of photography. He used to shoot all of Christopher Nolan's films until for whatever reason, their collaboration stopped around 2013. Now Christopher Nolan shoots with Hoyte van Hoytema. So yeah, it, it looks great. They have great talent involved. They paid kind of the most desirable screenwriters in the biz to work on this. I mean, there's no Aaron Sorkin. He's like, he's the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Steve Zalian, he's set for life too uh, with his, mm-hmm. his collaborations with Spielberg. So its box office was $110 million, which call me cynical, but I feel like if this movie came out in 2023, it would not make nearly... Mm-hmm as much i don't know even though it's probably something people would stream yeah yeah to Um, your point i feel like people wouldn't be paying to see it yeah 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 i i feel like this came around like it it was still around the time where people were going to the theaters regularly and big stars had well star power today it's basically like tom cruise and well so (laughs) this is the interesting thing about this conversation which we also talked about in context of infinity pool is how we're also in a paradigm shift with streaming 
the and that's why I find this time very interesting for film and television rather than something like music because studios are much more likely to spend 20 million dollars on a nothing or an independent movie that will be narratively good mm-hmm. than they would have been 10 to 15 years ago because they would have been taking much more of a risk with the box office. Yeah. Because if you release something on streaming and it's a hit, it's less of a risk. So I, again, speaking of paradigm shifts, music is not going through a shift like this. It's very much still pop artists who aren't Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. pushing the envelope in terms of what lyrics or sound could be doing. Mm -hmm. That's what film and television is going through right now. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's that's why paradigm shifts are interesting to me. And that's why, like, if we were ever to write something, you need to look for something like that to really make it believable and compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that I love about uh, and like why the why it's such a compelling story to me and relatable is that like the beauty of baseball is that, you know, er, er, and how it's shown in, in this movie is you have the high points of, you know, the 21 game streak, the comeback after an 11 run, you know, after they give up 11 runs. Um, and then, you know, the, you know, how compelling Scott Hatterberg's story is and, you know, he hits that home run, but then, you know, that's not where the movie ends. It's, you know, they lose in a, you know, kind of dismal fashion to the twins in the division series. You know, that's not even like they get close to the, to the world series and in the, you know, the, well, right before the credits, you know, uh, they start, sh- you know, they put those lines in there about the team and they still haven't won a World Series um, right. since then. And in spite of, you know, their sustained success during the regular season, they don't really have much to show for it. And so I think mm-hmm. I think that's why it's such a it's such a great story, because it, it gives you that perfect kind of taste of victory and taste of success. And, you know, your hard work paying off. But then it comes back, you know, and and Billy even, you know, turning down the decision mm-hmm. to go to Boston, like he told, he, like he said, he, you know, told himself he would never make a, you know, decision based on money again. And, you know, if mm-hmm. he had, who knows if the Red Sox would have won, but you know, there's probably a pretty good chance they still would have won even, you know, if he did go over there. And I think, you know, that kind of dynamic of, is, is a perfect life story of, you know, you have these moments where you, you taste that success, you know, but on the other hand, you can see it with Billy. It's like, he's, he doesn't want to go back into the film room with Peter Brandt, you know, mm-hmm. and he has that story, but it's like, you know, he goes back on the field and kind of lays down and, you know, is just staring up at the sky. And it's like, you, you can feel that sense of the next season is coming up. And so it's like, yeah. on the one hand, you're dreading it, but on the other hand, you're like, maybe this is the year, you know, it's, there's any, that any given Saturday, afternoon. Uh, any given Sorry. Saturday afternoon. And, and I just, I, I love that because that's, that's yeah. kind of the relationship I've always had with baseball. It's, a, it's kind of a love hate where it's, you know, it's given me so much, but it's also feels like it's taken so much. And I still feel that way. I mean, that's why I, I, I had to make a conscious effort to, to watch even, you know, when we weren't winning, because, you know, that's the whole point is those, those big comebacks, the best games are always the ones, you know, the tight games, it's not the blowouts. And anyways, I just, I, I love that, that aspect of the movie where it, it, it hits both notes where, you know, it's, Mm. it's fun and exciting, but then it also, you know, kind of brings you back down to reality. And it shows yeah. you know well it's you know it's not all quite and that, which a lot of sports movies do is you know the end is always that big game you know the you overcome the opponent that's always beaten you but i think it's kind of great that and it's obviously a true story but you know the the a's you know still kind of in that rut and they're still i mean they they've been 
talking about leaving Oakland for a long time. And it seems now more than ever that they probably will. And it, it's just, it's kind of, I think that's another interesting aspect of, of the story, you know, zooming out and coming at, you know, bringing it back to where we are now is, you know, if they end up moving within the next couple of years and they, you know, not having won a world series since 1989 in Oakland, that's, you know, that's, it's, it's a, it's a sad story, uh, you know? And yeah, but yeah. anyways, I guess bringing it back to the book, I, I'm just curious if that kind of theme was touched on at all, you know, kind of that it would, you know, as effective as it's been for the team, it's also, you know, hasn't really gotten them to their final goal. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't I have know. something the, to say, but do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I don't know if you're going to say what I'm going to say, but obviously the book is very focused on the analytics of it all. And I think Michael Lewis touches on the statistics of legacy and also Mm -hmm. like the meaning behind uh, statistics and ties into the underdog story i think it's almost cooler that the a's will be more remembered for being the team that pioneered sabermetrics as opposed to being the team that won after a certain amount of years you know it's more compelling for the red sox anyways they you know they had a hundred or so years and i and also the um how long did the, the Chicago Cubs have? You know, I, I think oh, was it like 108 or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think they, those teams can have that story, but I think the cool legacy of the A's that's touched upon in the book is that like, they will always be this team regardless of whether or not they won. Now what makes Billy's character or Billy, the person, <laughs> the real life person so compelling. And it's also tragic is that he was famous for wanting to win. He, he wanted to win more than anything. And that's a line of dialogue in the movie too. So it's cool in a legacy type way that the book touches on, but also very, it's, it's more sad also yeah. in the book. Yeah, I, I think it, I didn't actually think about how this movie and book don't end with a win. I actually didn't think about that because I guess I, I don't really think about sports movies a lot, but one of the reasons that I sometimes don't find them super compelling is you kind of feel like you always know they're going to win at the end. Mm. Um, So I actually do like that. And I agree that for people who are like, I wouldn't have thought about their, the Oakland A's legacy if they do leave in the next few years, it would be the pioneering of literally, like, I, I don't think that they get enough credit for that almost. Like I, again, as someone who doesn't really watch sports, how in the world would I know that yeah. or even think about it? Cause I read the book and watched the movie and I didn't come up with that conclusion to give yeah. them more credit for developing this system. I should, I say them because obviously teams are kind of a organization. So that's interesting, but, but really it was just Billy and Paul um, and Bill James. <laughs> <laughs> they really like, that's the team that I'm talking about. But The other thing that I was going to ask you as a fan is like, is this a disappointing way of playing baseball? Because their goal is to win. Like no one's questioning whether or not they want to win. And like you said, especially Billy Bean. But as a fan, especially watching teams that are historically not that great, with all of this, you know, even like mid-season trade stuff that can happen, is it really disappointing to see the stats followed in that way and then almost disregarding the magic of what can happen 
when you put a team together and you keep them together for a while. Because I remember you and dad talking specifically about some teams throughout Dodger baseball history that have just like, they just stuck together and they were, they were a dream team and whether they won or lost a world series, which again is always like the fun goal. It's like, it's just fun to watch these players be teammates. It's fun to watch them play because they're great players. So like how disappointing is it sometimes knowing that there might be a trade coming on a player that you really, really enjoy watching, but, but you know, where the organization is concerned, it's, are we winning, but also are we making money? Like how yeah. disappointing is that as a fan to you? Well, so that's that's an excellent question because yeah, another reason that just to give a little more context, like another reason I, I really like, I, I have a little special place in my heart for the A's is because going to undergrad at Berkeley, like we could go to baseball games for super cheap because you know the games were almost empty sure. always, and and I can <laughs> explain why. But it was easy because you know the the train system, the BART, which is it's like a fifteen minute ride between school and and going to those games. And mm-hmm. as a fan, you know I, I you know I can't speak all too well, you know, because I they aren't my team. But I know a lot of people who are Oakland A's fans, and that's the thing is you talk about the trades, like they, their whole system is extremely predictable because as soon as these players get to a certain point of kind of, they've reached their um, in the early part of their career, they've reached their value, like the most value that the A's can get out of them. They trade them to get picks mm-hmm. and young guys again. So they'll have a core of maybe three or four guys. And, and this happened um, two years ago. You can hear the fans talking about how they excited they are. I mean, they'll have, all-stars and gold glovers and silver sluggers but then they trade them you know right before they become free agents because then the a's still get something out of it and so they never get the chance to to build that fun team that you know that that emotional connection to some of these players because they know they're just going to get traded Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's still the sacrifice of not being able to put money into a team because it's right i mean like in terms of like the ownership yeah, I know we were talking about, um, you know, for the fans, it's it's tough when you when you see these young players who are are very talented. You know, the A's draft extremely well and 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 can trade and maximize their value. But you know, at the same time, by maximizing their value, they trade them away before they're free agents, so they can still get some value back. So they never build mm-hmm. that emotional connect. I mean, you know, that emotional attachment that someone, you know, a bigger franchise. Right. has those keystone players that are around for their entire career. Um, right. And that's definitely, that's a huge downside. And that's why their fans, I mean, the games will be attended by less than 2000 fans at times. I mean, and that's incredibly low. And I mean, I know, and this goes back a long time. I know dad talks about, he was at one of the lowest attended games ever and it was at the that's Oakland right. Coliseum Yeah, and the team and part of the thing. And, and th- I think this is what I was getting to. I was trying to get to earlier was, the spending habits of owners is different between every club and sure teams, you know, from bigger markets like LA and New York can, can naturally spend more. And you have a, an owner like Steve Cohen of the Mets who is on Twitter telling his fans, like, who do you guys want? Like, I will literally spend my money to go out and get them insane (laughs) versus the A's who, you know, again, it's one of those things where these guys have money and can spend more, but choose not to. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a debate mm-hmm. there that can be had. But, you know, they've been, they wanted a new stadium for the A's. They've been in the Coliseum for, I think, as long as they've been in Oakland. And it's everyone by everyone's standards, you know, it's it's a terrible place to play. And, and mm-hmm. um, 
that's one of the reasons they're threatening to leave. And, and anyways, the, the one thing I kind of want to wrap up and one of the things that, again, I just, is special to me about this movie and this, and the story of baseball is that even though there has been a paradigm shift, there's a rubber band effect where come playoffs, there's a lot of critics um, for certain managers who will stick too close to the data driven decisions. Mm. Um, this flared up almost, you know, one of the most recent and famous examples of this, of course, bringing it back to the Dodgers was in the World Series a couple of years ago where there was a pitcher pulled, at least the claim by the manager was that it was it was because of the numbers that, that he, he said, this is when I need to take him out because otherwise he's going to give up runs. And it immediately backfired within that the, the very next batter, the Dodgers had tied the game and ended up winning the World Series that very game. And he didn't, you know, everyone else was like, why would you do that? This guy was cruising. He was carving up the Dodgers lineup, like all this stuff. And so I think one of the reasons that, again, it's so it's such a fun story. It's so compelling is that it's still this marriage of data and the gut instinct of sports. Like you can never you can never rely on one yeah. more heavily you know, than the other. There still has to be a balance. And I always talk about that philosophy with yeah. me in every aspect of life is there's, yeah. there's got to be some kind of balance uh, that you have to find. No, I like that you touched on this too, because one of my final wrap up thoughts is that as much as everybody likes to think of data as purely objective, the problem is that the people who are manipulating and analyzing the data are humans. And so especially with something like sports, where you have this theoretical, and I think that Jonah Hill's character is the voice of that in the movie, where he's still, he in fact is the one who kind of closes the movie on that home run, like AAA player or whatever, who thought he only hit a single or a double, but he had hit a home mm-hmm. run, that like there is the theoretical statistics of what would happen if you had a player playing a thousand games and then there's the reality of what can happen because these are humans playing and Mm -hmm. humans make mistakes i i remember one of the early things that michael lewis writes about is how errors are calculated in baseball which is like purely subjective because it's like the only statistic in sports that fans just say like oh, that player should have done something else. And it's not like, that's not objective. And the other thing that I find so compelling about data is that especially nowadays in a world where people are, again, there's been a slight paradigm shift. This is something we still have to really work hard at fighting is like racial bias in data. And there's a lot of stuff that people, because we're the ones who are inputting data there are a lot of things that people don't think to either correct for or even consider in different data sets. So I think that could be another really interesting conversation, either in another movie or something that could have been discussed a little more in this, but I don't know if that's like too theoretical. I think they probably had a good balance where like at the very end, like we talked about, there's like a reminder that things are still complete. It's still just a game and yeah. there's still a lot of a lot of variables that you just have no control over and so having that understanding that you not only need to correct for things and you also need to be keenly aware of different biases that can look objective but truly aren't they're just left over from either like racist thinking or sexist thinking or 
this is how we've always done it kind of thinking. Like errors are still calculated. Like why do why do we yeah. do that if we know that it's an objectively subjective <laughs> set of data? You know what I mean? So like I think there's a good reminder of that. I also think that not a lot of people consider that in the real world um, in terms of any type of data collecting. And so I, I'd i be very interested in having that discussion in maybe another vehicle. Maybe that's a sports movie. Maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that I don't think people consider because when you hear data, you think objectivity. And that's not always true. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the compelling part of the story that I think Aaron Sorkin, and Steve Zalian really, uh, really found and Bennett Miller exploited. Is that the right word? Or he f- further yeah. develops that, which this movie is kind of like a best of both worlds where you where you have the more or less clinical part of the sport, which is the stats. But then you have the very mm-hmm. human part of it which is things can still happen despite statistics pointing on one way, the very human part of the sport of letting people go or trading people despite them having lives and starting new lives in different cities. Um, yeah. yeah. So it, it's like a very well put together story, slightly slower than most sports stories are. I wouldn't call this a boring movie at all. It's just moving at a different pace. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like perhaps- baseball. Yep, exactly, Robin. Bringing it all around Bringing the bases. Full circle. Yeah, home run, baby. <laughs> One last thing I wanted to bring up that we didn't touch on was the character of Peter Brand changed. Yeah, that's changed yeah. a bit from the real life guy. What's the real life guy? Paul guys? D. Podesta. Right? Paul D. Podesta. Yeah. So, in real life, he joined the A's in uh, '99, not in uh, '02, mm-hmm. like happens in the movie. Um, he did work for the Cleveland uh, Indians, but are they still called the Indians? No, there, I actually there's called? a there's a really interesting story about them. That name, anyways, uh, the Guardians. Yeah, finish your thought. Finish your thought. Gotcha. Sorry. Yeah, so the Indians now yes, the Guardians. Sorry. So he joined the A's before then, and. The A's had already been adapting sabermetrics before O2. So the movie kind of changes it to like O2 is like Billy Bean and Peter Brand spearheaded it. But really, it was a few years before that. Also, in real life, Dee Podesta went to Harvard, not Yale. And the only reason Hmm. I can come up with that they changed it because a genius going to Harvard is such a stereotype and like so obvious in Hollywood, you know, like in movies, you're like, Oh yeah, I went to Harvard. Right. So that's what that's interesting. Yeah. That is weird. My, my only guess is that they just changed it. So it wouldn't be such a cliche that someone who's super. I mean, Yale is just as much of a, you know, I, I would say, no, I would say Harvard is the ultimate like collegiate, cliche in movies i mean for good reason like it's not like they didn't that university didn't earn that distinction however i think my only guess is that they just changed it so it would like seem more believable yeah no i i I wrote that down i i specifically said harvard down here because i thought that was interesting i didn't catch that and i read the book so maybe i wasn't reading the book that closely but this is another reason why i i just hate biopics and dramatized nonfiction because I I did read the book I forgot about that that's my fault but I just I don't know why they do that like 
what it just why bothers the movie me. Or yeah the... it bothers me because the movie right mm. i it, it bugs me so much that even little tiny things like that in a movie are not true you know what it might be harvard is very famously they don't let a lot of movies film on their campus like for the social network they didn't let david fincher of all people shoot so perhaps they didn't like clear the name harvard and they couldn't for like for legal reasons they couldn't show he does wear a yale sweater yeah in the beginning so maybe that's one i don't so i watched a little bit about that and i about paul versus peter and like Mm -hmm. It sounds like Paul didn't love, he had nothing against Jonah Hill or how he, like his acting, but he said he didn't, it was, it's funny. I, I don't know what it is. Like dad not watching the Lakers documentary because he lived through it. Like Peter, from what I heard, it was like, he felt kind of the same way where he just like, didn't really love having a portrayal of him and like his life. And so it could sure. just be another way to distinguish the two. And yeah. I mean, that's just a guess again, but also Bean didn't go to, or it, it wasn't Stanford. It was UCSD. Another just like, See what like in the why? World. Yeah, that's that is really interesting. I'm glad that you watched that clip because mm, yeah, that could that could have just been another way to sort of distance the personas, like yeah. um, changing. But they the still name. went with a P name. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's whatever. But but it's interesting. It, it could that. it could actually be in terms of the the actual person. That's an interesting point. I don't know. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up though, because I didn't notice. Of course. Yeah. By the end of that book, I'm serious. Like, <laughs> like there was there were these like pages where they would literally list names of players that were in the draft picks, and I was yeah. just like, "This is so fucking boring." Like, I, I just like I I have literally names of like college players from 1998. Uh huh. Yeah. Just listed in the book, and I was just like what the fuck why would you write this i don't know but by the end of the book i was just like i'm so done it's slightly similar to friday night lights where the movie is very cinematic and then you read the book which came out first obviously Mm -hmm. and it is Mm -hmm. not about football really it's about the town and the economics of the town and the players and its stats and you're like oh I, this is not <laughs> what I'm looking for at all. Um, <laughs> but but that being said, I mean, we can get to final ratings here. Sure. I, I still valued the book in what we've talked about here, which is like taking something very compelling stats and like finding the storytelling mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. stats. I think it's cool. Is it my favorite book ever? No. Do I agree that there are passages where it is just names and mm-hmm no story at all and it's not compelling in the slightest yes mm-hmm. so for the book i'm gonna go three out of four that high yeah i a low three but a three nonetheless mm-hmm. um a 3.1 uh, yeah <laughs> for the movie i mean like this is a salt there's really nothing wrong with it except for maybe some pacing issues here and there but it's pretty solid great acting obviously bennett miller in his three films has proven that This film was nominated for six Oscars. Best Actor for Brad Pitt. Best Supporting for Jonah Hill. Best Editing. Best Sound Mixing. Best Director and Best Picture. It won zero. Uh, Mm -hmm. This was the year of The Artist. Oh, Jesus. I forgot about that movie. I've never seen that. Hmm. Um, Yeah, so this was the year. Well, everyone's favorite Best Picture winner, The Artist. Right? Yeah. Mm. joking of course yeah so it lost all but it's a really solid film and yeah I'm, I'm gonna go three and a half out of four nice it's a good one 
Robin, how about you? Rating for the movie out of four. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, good question. Like you said, I, I don't, I mean, personally, I, I think <laughs> maybe it's the baseball player in me. I don't have too much of an issue with the pacing. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it, me personally, I think it hits on every note. I mean, I would go, I don't know, I'll go 3.8 out of four. We normally don't do percentages other than 0.5, <laughs> but we'll accept it because you're family. <laughs> All right. More? Um, Here comes the bloodbath for the book. The book is an easy one out of four. I don't... This, unfortunately, is one of those situations where it probably put me off of anything else that Michael Lewis has written because I almost picked up the big short at a thrift store a little while ago because I knew it was a book and I texted to Danny and he was like, eh, I don't think I'm super interested, but I was still kind of entertaining covering it. But after reading this book by Michael Lewis, I just will probably shy away from covering that unless we ever get into a situation where we literally don't have anything else to cover, which is probably never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately he just really is not my style for multiple reasons that I went into earlier. Um, and then the movie, I, I would say 3.5 out of four, just yeah. because like the, the only reason I knock it down a half star is because it's just like, there are some cliches that I know go into dramatized nonfiction that sure. mm -hmm. are, it's just a stylistic thing for me. But other than sure. that, I think they covered what they were given in terms of source material really well. I also don't think that we've mentioned Robin Wright who pops up in like two or three scenes that Gosh. I just, she's just wonderful and everything I've seen her she's in. She's great. And... But for years she just played the wife or the ex-wife. Yeah. And it wasn't until house of cards that she really had a resurgence, but yes, it was well, great to yeah. see her. I mean, that's classic treatment of, you know, quote unquote aging women in Hollywood. True. But I just, I like her. I, like, I thought the daughter was, She's a dramatic addition, even though I think Billy Bean does have a daughter in real life or like a couple kids. And I think she did well. So there's nothing specific that I'm knocking the half star down for just other than the fact that it's not my, yeah. it's dramatized nonfiction and it's sports. So it's aren't yeah. my, aren't my It's a great favorite. score for, for the, yeah. And actually just random addition to the score was pretty good i thought it actually reminded me a lot of friday night lights yes of friday oh, night lights. very similar um, um the show i've never seen the movie the, but the, the movie the score the movie has a similar score to okay, the show because the score definitely reminded me of the theme song to the friday night lights show and it, it had like a good sort of like sports kind of dramatic but also feel good but also work hard play hard kind of yeah I mean the the clip of the home run to to win the twenty first game. I mean oh, that yeah. that that sound has been sampled in sure. a billion things. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily it's been in other movies, but memes and videos and yeah. you know, people put it over Reels. their own teams. You know, yeah, doing real, yeah, yeah. It's, oh yeah, you hear it yeah. all the time. So Michael Dana, he had like a solid. This is a sports movie score. Yeah, wasn't so. nominated though, but which is crazy. Anyways, <laughs> that's well, it. Robin, what an episode. It's been a long time coming, your return. Yeah. But he's back. The Messiah is back. <laughs> what, babe? Um, <laughs> and we're also about 15 minutes into the football game that you wanted to start. So we should probably yeah, wrap right. up pretty quick. He's um, pissed. <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's wearing a Rams jersey, right? Not a Chargers? Yeah. Rams oh, yeah. Jersey. Um, one of the two 
professional football teams in Los Angeles. Go Pats! Yeah, we do have eighty a, for Brady. Danny's out in theaters now. A Boston. Actually, the jersey I'm wearing. Brady. The jersey I'm wearing is the one from that that Super Bowl between the Rams. Oh, and the Pats. very nice. That that uh that the Rams won. Yeah. No. Oh, didn't win. It was a terrible game. No. Oh. Was, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Pats wiped the floor with them. Not All really. Right. It was a thirteen to three game. It was like one of the worst. Yeah. Worst scoring that <laughs> Super Bowl. <laughs> oh shit. Um, well, anyway, we'll we'll wrap up and let you go watch your sports. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess we're almost wrapping up series eight, and we look forward to getting into series nine. But um, thanks yeah. for being on, Robin. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see where where I'll be in two and a half years when I come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. For our take two on Shutter Island, right? Is that's what Ooh. you really want to come back for? Ooh. I, I have I've been. I know I've been toying with the idea of going back doing like a special episode and covering like one of our favorites Something just to party. see. Yeah. Yeah. Just to see if we get anything. Like, I feel yeah. like Shutter Island would be a great one to go into because every time you watch that movie, I don't have to tell you to every time you watch it again, you get something else yeah. out of it. So yeah. Or if... even compare movies, you know, in, in a similar yeah. theme. Oh, that's a good idea too. Oh yeah. We'll have to build a couple episodes around a retake. Um, but anyway, let's wrap up. So Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week for our coverage on Minority Report. Ooh, that's going to be a heavy hitter. That's a really good episode. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, thanks for listening. Please follow, subscribe, write a review if you want to. And yeah, we'll see you on the next one.